Welcome to the Art of Sucking at Music podcast. I'm your host, Chris Hazel, and for those of you who don't know a whole lot about me, I'm a musician, and we can just keep it simple like that. About two months ago, I launched the Art of Sucking at Music on YouTube, and I really wasn't expecting a whole lot, to be honest. The first video was kind of a throwaway, I saw it as sort of my thesis statement, something that visitors could check out to understand what my channel was going to be about. So I uploaded it, expecting it to go somewhat unnoticed, but it would live at the top of my channel and stay there in case anybody was curious. Apparently, however, I had underestimated that video, and within just a few days it found its way into the graces of the YouTube algorithm and received a response that I couldn't have even dreamed of. Especially for being the first attempt at doing that whole, you know, YouTube thing. Yeah, sure, it got a lot of views and likes and all that stuff, but the part that I was truly blown away by was the comments section. Literally thousands of viewers felt inspired to take the time to respond, share their stories, and share the things that they've struggled with throughout their respective journeys with music. And this cool thing happened where, suddenly, it seemed like there was a place where musicians, including myself, didn't have to feel alone. Here was this comment section on this one video, where you could see that other people struggle with the same things that you struggle with when it comes to learning music. And in an age where we're increasingly more isolated from one another, where music has become more and more of this individual pursuit, a space for collectivism like that, in music where you could share with and learn from others, seemed like a novel but important idea. Which is weird, right? I mean, music is sort of an inherently communal thing. That's how it started, at least, and that's how it's been throughout most of history. And yet we've come to a place where a collective and collaborative musical space seems rare. Anyway, it made me think about the importance of community in the context of finding and maintaining inspiration. I was lucky enough to grow up at a time where it was the norm to get a group of friends together in a garage and work it out. You learned together, you grew together, you succeeded together, and you failed together. And because you had other people that you were doing this thing with, inspiration, motivation, and accountability were never really that hard to find. And if you ever felt like you were dragging your feet in one of those areas, you had two or three or four other people to keep the stoke high and pull you out of your funk. But today's musical landscape looks a lot different. Where it used to be almost necessary to go find other friends who played other instruments, nowadays you have every instrument you could ever imagine, digitally prepackaged, right at your fingertips, and for relatively little money. So why even go through all the trouble of meeting other musicians and schlepping it out in a hot garage when you could just put it all together in your bedroom, use a bunch of digital tools to perfect it, and have it done before lunch? Like so many other things in our society, music has succumbed to individualism. And look, I've even sort of unwittingly made that shift. The last three records I released were made entirely in isolation. Don't get me wrong, it's fun and convenient to be able to fully develop an idea in a moment of inspiration, but it's also pretty lonely. Yeah, the ability to be entirely self-sufficient is great, but you have no one to bounce ideas off of. No one to share your successes or your failures with. If you succeed, you succeed alone. And if you fail, you fail alone. 
in a vacuum. And there can be a lot to contend with there in terms of mental health and well-being. You see, we humans are inherently social creatures. We derive our sense of purpose from our role in a community. And playing and sharing music with others is almost a perfect one-to-one -one microcosm of that. Whether you're in a band, or in an orchestra, or even just like jamming with your friends on the weekend, you and every other person there is equally responsible for contributing something to a collective whole. And to me, that is one of the most beneficial parts of playing music. So when I saw what was happening on YouTube, reading comment after comment about how alone these viewers felt in their musical endeavors, I felt compelled to lean into the idea of supplementing for this growing lack of community in music. I launched a Discord server where all musicians, regardless of skill or interest, can come to interact with and learn from other musicians. And if you want to join, you definitely should. I'll include a link in the show notes. But I also started reaching out to the people that I've been lucky enough to encounter in my creative journey. People that have inspired me. People that I admire creatively. And I asked to have public conversations with them in the hopes of inspiring others to converse as well. Which brings us here, to this podcast. It's going to be a hodgepodge, for sure. Uh, a lot of the episodes are probably going to be audio versions of my YouTube videos. Some of the episodes might just be me sitting and talking about something that I've been thinking about for a while. But once a month, I'll be having a conversation with someone who has inspired me creatively and personally impacted my life as a musician. They most likely won't be famous or incredibly well-known artists. There's enough of that out there. And regardless, I've often found that the uber-successful can sometimes have a tendency to lose touch with what it's like to be an everyday artist in a society that rarely values art. So instead, my guests are going to be people, like you and me, who have a capacity and a drive for creativity and have chosen to make it a central part of their lives. Some of them have chosen to make careers out of it, some of them have chosen to keep it for themselves, but all of them have been bitten by the bug, and all of them have created music and art that I admire greatly. So, to kick things off, this month I'm joined by my good friend Jeremy Bennett, also known as Soros. Jeremy and I have been friends for a handful of years now, and our musical backgrounds couldn't be more different. While I'm more of a traditionalist who's somewhat wary of technology, Jeremy is a technological wizard, and he uses digital and electronic tools to make some really incredible and captivating music. And as you can imagine, our views on the role of technology in music differ quite a bit, at least on the surface. And our conversations always seem to flow from one subject to the next, covering things like existing music tech, the future of music tech, but more importantly, what the possible implications of some of these advances might be. So naturally, he was the first person I thought of when I was considering doing a podcast. And honestly, the conversation didn't disappoint. Just a small disclaimer, the audio quality on the interview is not the best. As you can probably tell, we had the chat over the internet, and I'm still figuring out miking situations for that. Future episodes will be better. So here it is, for your listening pleasure, my chat with Jeremy Bennett, a.k.a. Soros. 
I like get up to go to the bathroom or, or I don't know if we want to look something up, maybe. I don't know. No, that's that's staying in. That's staying in, yeah. If you go to the bathroom. And you have to take the camera with you. I'll take the camera with me. Just like old times. Dude, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for having me. This is my favorite topic of conversation. One of the reasons why um, we thought this would be an interesting conversation is because I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I have a, a lack of trust for technology, for certain technology, which is hilarious because I'm like surrounded by technology in my studio with electronic drums and all that stuff. But you're like a straight up technologist. What sparked your interest in technology? Do you remember where it started? Yeah, I think so. I, I kind of got into like music and then computers separately when I was a kid. First mm -hmm. got into like music and then just was really drawn to computers. And so the moment that I was able to like figure out how to fuse those two interests together, it was just like, oh shit. Um, but yeah, they started out like kind of at different tracks and so many of like the things that I'm into are like that. They're just like different things. And I always like to figure out how to fuse those interests together. And that was like the first like aha moment for, for me anyway. And yeah, and I guess just the interest in technology is just continued along. Same with music. At what point do you remember the first time that you discovered, oh, I can do, I can combine these interests in like technology and computers and music? Uh, Someone, I went to a record store once and bought some like electronic music and the guy behind the counter was like, oh, you're into this, like you're into electronic music. And he gave me this like demo disc of some like really like goofy so like music making software. And I, it never occurred to me to like make music on the computer and so I installed it and started messing around. And then like immediately it was just like uh, once I started like m combining like samples together and seeing how you could like lock them in and make these arrangements of like pre-recorded sound and stuff like that it was just like oh shit this is so do, fun yeah do you remember what the software was yeah it's called mixman studio uh mac i had the mac version and it's funny thinking back on it now it's not a dissimilar approach to how like ableton live works you're loading samples onto this like very rudimentary ui and then triggering them with the keys on your keyboard and so if you have drums on letter D and like, you know, a bass on letter F and you hold them together, then you get the drum loop and then the bass loop at the same time. And that oh, I vividly remember the first time that like I put two sounds together. And it was it was like shocking. <laughs> I, I, um, I remember the first time I ever messed around with a DAW of any kind. It was um, I was living in the Bay Area and working at Guitar Center and I had two roommates. One of my roommates lived on the floor in the living room. And he had this, they had given us like at guitar center for some reason, they had given us a free version of logic, but all of our computers were too old to use it. So he had this old version of, I don't even, I don't even remember what the software was called. It was like super rudimentary, but it was the first time I ever messed around with it. And like, I jumped in and I sort of started recording some stuff and some songs that I was writing and it just like sparked this thing in my brain you know what i mean and i remember every day because we lived like walking distance from work our mm -hmm. apartment was walking distance from the, from guitar center so every day at lunch i'd come home and like heat up you know the some of the big batch of like rice and weenies that i had made for the week because i was broke 
And then I would just like put some soy sauce on it and I'd sit there and I'd eat and I'd just record for an hour and then I'd go back to work. Yeah. But yeah, that technology stuff, like the technology stuff, when you first <laughs> sort of, you know, like start clicking around, I mean, it's kind of magical, right? Yeah. I, that was very much the experience I had there. It was, it was like that aha moment or whatever. Like it, it, it was like a, it opened up a, a door in a way that it sounds like it, it did for you in a kind of different uh, avenue. Like for, like the thing that I didn't experience with it that I think you did is how it could enhance the like tracking experience of like recording instruments and like, um, you know, the alternative being having to like rent time in a studio and do all of mm. that and like the pressure of time constraints. Yeah. And it's just, you know, the moment that you're able to be creative in that way in like your bedroom, I think is just a game changer. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's super cool. I mean, cause up until that point I, you know, I had been in bands and like recorded in studios and done all of that stuff. And it's a, there's a lot of pressure when you have somebody uh, who's sitting behind the board and like producing you. And then you have the engineer there and then you have the rest of your band sitting there too. And like, you know, waiting, it's, it's one thing to, to record in front of your band. It's another thing to record in front of like a producer or an engineer, somebody mm -hmm. who you, you know, especially the engineer, you kind of hardly know them and you're in the vocal booth or whatever. And they're like, Oh, you can do that better. And I'm just so nervous all the time, but yeah. Yeah. So being able to click around and just like record a guitar part and I was like, oh, that, that was fucked up. And then I'm going to go back and redo it and that kind of thing. And it was all super basic. Like I didn't understand EQ. I didn't under, I had no clue what compression even was, uh, like none of that stuff. I didn't, I didn't get any of it. Cause I think it was like 17 or 18, but, um, something, there was just something really cool about being able to cobble together ideas on like this thing that was just sitting on your desk, you know? And I think there's like a, 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 a magic too, in just being able to, like, I think I would imagine one of the jarring experiences going into a studio as well is like when you're writing music, you're practicing or whatever you're with your band and you're, you know, at home or you're at some familiar place. And like, all of a sudden you have to then like lay all that down in a very alien environment sort of it's mm -hmm. yeah it, it adds to the discomfort and it, it it can make things challenging and it, i've always been someone who very much values like my you know my space and i like uh i feel most creative in my space in when i'm you know not wondering who's watching or something like that that's when i feel like i can blossom in that way yeah. And I would imagine that it sounds like you had a similar experience. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. There's like a, there's a balance because having a time constraint and having people there to give you the feedback and having that pressure can be a good thing. But at the same time, you know, being in the comfort of your own home and getting infinite amount of time to kind of craft something and hone it can be really great too. But that can also be a bad thing. You know, yes. maybe you won't you won't step away. You don't have anybody to, there to say, no, 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 that was good. Don't, don't worry. Don't worry about it. You're done. Move right. on. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can sit the, for hours. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. The, the endless possibilities is it's, it's having limitations is a, you know, a powerful creative tool. Um, and 
yeah, it, it can be overwhelming when you sit down and like it dawns on you like, oh, I can do anything and mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of don't know where to start. You get like a writer's block really easily that way. So, you know, you, you discovered that you could make music using that program. What was it called again? Uh, Mixman Studio. Mixman yeah. Studio. Yeah. yeah you, so you discovered that you could make music using Mixman Studio, just using your keyboard. So, like, where did it go from there? Because the shit that I've heard you do in Ableton and, like, the music that you put together is mind-blowing to me. Like, you... You, the, what you do with samples and the way that you twist them and tweak them and make them your own is really cool. So, like, what was the path between uh, Mixman Studio and what you're doing now? Um, thank you for those kind words. Um, fuck you. Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I got really interested in sampling and, like, hip-hop production. And so... Mm-hmm. In addition to the Mixman Studio thing, I got really into like turntables and turntablism and like learning how to scratch and learning how to mix rec- like, you know, put one record on and then mix it with another one and stuff like that. And so who, who was turntab- your favorite? Who was your favorite turntablist? DJ Shadow by a long shot. Yeah. He's just like the most I've never I've still not heard anyone like scratch in such a tasteful, like spacious way. He's not very showy with it. And he, yeah, and I, I was so drawn to that, like, elegance. But So, yeah, the turntables was a big deal in conjunction with the Mixman Studio thing. And, like, at some point I got, I got a new computer at some point, and it came with GarageBand, and I kind of started messing with that and uh, eventually got, like, Logic, um, mm-hmm. Logic Pro, and started working in that. And it was crazy. It had so many, like, different things that it was so many light years ahead of like the Mixman studio thing, but it was really difficult for me to work in. It was like a very like traditional DAW where you record your, your part and then you layer it and you might have some effects, but um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty straightforward and not, not geared for looping. Yeah. If you're used to working with loops, working in like a linear recording DAW can be kind of confusing. What would you say is one of your favorite things to do in Ableton and use it? Like, what do you use it for? Or what's one of your uh, favorite things to use it for? The th- well, so the thing I love the most about Ableton is how easy it is to just start making something from scratch without having to do much prep. Um, mm-hmm. I love being able to throw a sample into Ableton and to easily be able to, like, you know, uh, beat match it or change the pitch that to me. Okay. Yeah. If there's one thing it's, it's being able to change pitch of a sample without affecting the speed. If you want it to, that was always like the, mm-hmm. the biggest challenge with the other stuff. I had no way to do that. It was always, if you slow it down then the pitch changes and then it doesn't match or whatever. And, and so frankly, just the pitch shifting thing is a huge deal for me to yeah. make samples musically match. Um, uh, I think being able to like workshop like sample based ideas or, or MIDI loops or anything is, is um, it's just so much fun. It's the immediacy of it that appeals to me, which is really, again, it's hard to find that in electronic music. When you think about computers, you don't really think about immediacy. You think about right. like programming something and then, and then it executes. And that was always like a weird 
conflict for me. Because in, in some ways it has turned some forms of music into programming, right? And who's to say whether or not that's expressive, but it's a, it's a very different way of, you know, like drawing uh, piano notes on a piano roll is very different than where I come from, which is like the, a huge advocate for skill development, taking time to like learn and hone a craft and, and those kinds of things. Um, and I try not to be too judgmental about it, but secretly I totally, I totally fucking am judgmental about it. Yeah. It's all right. What's your process like? What do you usually start with? I have like a, a library of, of, loops and sounds and things that I've just been building for at least, at least like 10 years or so. And so, you know, I know how to navigate that. And I know I usually start with drums. I think drums are so fun. I love like break beats and stuff like that. So I'll go to my drum library and just pull out the, you know, a drum sample and throw it in. And then I'll go to another folder and find some other musical sample that I think is fun or interesting. And I'll just see what happens when I combine those two things together. And, uh, you know, if, if there's if there's a nugget of something there, then I'll just like leverage that and lean into whatever that is. And if there isn't, then maybe I'll try something different. Um, but it's very exploratory. I think it's very mm -hmm. much like a throw things on the canvas and like see what see what sticks, see what happens. Um, and are you pretty are you pretty broad with it, or do you like do you ever go in with an idea in mind, or uh, do you stay pretty broad and open? Like it's, it's just like, I'm going to try this on this and you're mostly reacting to things in the moment. Yeah, definitely the latter kind of just seeing what happens. And, um, I've, I've definitely tried going in with an, like an agenda, I suppose. And it immediately is crushing to me because yeah. I think I, I, I'm also just like very distractible in many ways. I think we all are now, uh, or I, I, I definitely am very distractible. And so when I hear something that catches my ear, I can't not ignore it. And every time I tried to do, tried to go in with something specific in mind, I would immediately just get derailed and, and be interested by something else. Mm -hmm. So for me, I've just learned to follow that curiosity and just see what happens rather than trying to, I wish that I could like, come up with something in my mind and then execute it. And like it in any way approximates what was in my brain. I like, Oh dude, me too. I'm, I'm terrible at it. I yeah. even, so like the perfect metaphor for me or the perfect analogy is painting, right? Mm. Like I've always had a really hard time with seeing something in my brain and painting it. Um, so the, what I've, what I've, done for years now is I'll just take a bunch of paint and like make a mess out of it and then let it dry and then I'll go back with like a paint pen or something like that and see what I can pick out of it and turn it into so it's like taking this chaos and then making it into you know some type of cohesive thing I mean it's it's super abstract stuff but you know I've always had a really hard time going in with a preconceived idea. And the same thing with music. It's like, I'll probably have one like guitar riff or a vocal melody or something. And then I'll go in with that. And then it's a full on exploration, like sort of mining this thing in, 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 in a really reactive way. 
because that's how I grew up writing music. I grew up playing in bands. So that's a very reactive environment. Someone comes in with a, a riff, a guitar riff, and then the bass player goes, oh man, this would sound cool on that. And then the drummer's like, oh, this works, you know, and you're all reacting to each other. And then one of you goes, oh, and then what, what if it went here? So that's sort of like internally what happens with me in music. And it sounds like that's kind of what you do too. You start with like a sample or something like that. It, yeah, that sounds extremely familiar. Like that, I, th I feel like we have the same basic approach there of, of yeah, throwing. No wonder we're friends. Yeah, exactly. Great minds. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me too of like, um, <laughs> like uh, I, I'm probably butchering this. I want to say it was like Michelangelo or something, one of those like, you know, amazing sculptors who would talk about like, someone like would ask him like, how did you make, you know, how did you sculpt a, that rock into a lion? And he's like, well, it's just like cut away the parts that didn't look like a lion, which is maybe <laughs> a bad analogy because it's, it's, it's like a, you could argue that he did go in with an agenda, right? Possibly not. And, and I do feel like there's, it's a more fun approach to just, you know, create with abandon and then, to clean it up uh, mm -hmm. after the fact than it is to try and like make something amazing right from the get go. Cause it's just never going to happen. Like it's just not, I mean, sometimes that happens, but it's chance. Um, right. I think, um, but well, yeah, that's, that, sort of, I, that's sort of what always kind of rubbed me the wrong way about just Nashville in general. Like when I first moved there and, um, I'd started going to like these, uh, writing sessions, like co-writes with people. And that was never really, I mean, I, I always co-wrote, but it was in a band setting. That's a totally different thing than going into a room and sitting down and people saying, literally when you're sitting down, like, hey, okay, it's time for us to write a hit song. And my whole thing is like, it's, how could you possibly set the bar that high? Like, you can't write a hit, I, my belief is that you can't write a hit song while intending to write a hit song. But then again, there are a lot of people who do it, and especially these days, you know, um, that with with hit songs all being so formulaic and all of those right. things, I guess you can kind of stick to a formula. But it was always a weird, it was always a really weird expectation to me, you know, like, all right, let's let's write a hit song, let's do yeah. that. Yeah, there's something cringy about about that. Uh, yeah, I don't know what it is, it, and too like. Yeah, I mean, it, it is the case, like you're saying, like, I think that some people have, like, perfected that to a science. Like, mm -hmm. I think that some people have, like, they know what seems to, like, sell well musically or what, what gets people's attention musically. And that's cool. And that's, I think, really powerful and amazing. But it's just, like, a different thing. It, it's kind of putting the, uh, what is the phrase? Like, you put the the carriage before the horse or something. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's not, that's less of a, obviously it's creative on some level, but like it's, it's less uniquely creative because it's working from a very specific blueprint. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And I guess I just don't, again, back to this like short attention span. I tend not to like, I don't know that's, that stuff tends not to catch my ear, I guess. Um, yeah. Not to sound like pretentious, but like, it's just, I think there's a reason why, you know, I, there's a reason why people refer to certain forms of pop music or 
pop lyricism is formulaic um, and boring even. Uh, I mean, I so, wouldn't yes. say that that's pretentious. I'd say I maybe it is, but I'd say that that's pretty, uh, pretty well understood. Mm-hmm. I don't know, at least by uh, musicians. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is the common like it is the common sentiment like, oh, fucking pop music sucks and all this. Yeah, and like, and not you know, obviously there's examples of amazing pop music too. I don't want to like shit on pop music. Um, I had I was listening to Taylor Swift this morning, pretty pretty aggressively so really it's i wouldn't yeah. say that i like taylor swift but she has some like bangers man um <laughs> really does like so does justin bieber you know like these are uh, there are there are definitely like exceptions to the rule i think um uh rio rio will listen to justin bieber sometimes and i'm i'm just always so uh fascinated by how much it's like um like a nursery rhyme like his his vocal melodies are like a child song yeah you know yeah. and it's like it's the same thing it's like really 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 basic and it's re- super repetitive and i was like I was listening to the lyrics and I was like, these lyrics make very little sense. They're, they're just all like sexy words and things like that. Right. 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 Yeah. With Justin Bieber, like even Taylor Swift, like I, I agree. Like there are lyrics in even the songs that I like, they're just like, wow, that's like, again, cringy. Um, <laughs> but you know, the production is so good on some of them. And ooh, ooh. It, it, I, I do think yeah. of those, those like examples more in the vein of like electronic music than I do mm-hmm. like vocal music or anything like that. Like it's the, they're definitely like Taylor Swift songs that if they were played on an acoustic guitar or something, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be bangers. They wouldn't hit, yeah, the, they same wouldn't hit the same. Yeah. Um, I mean, pop, pop music and the way it's produced is, is impressive. I mean, that it's, it's hard to achieve that type of production for sure. And you know, even thinking about, um, I remember I listened to, uh, this is going to date me, but the, the um, Justin Timberlake, the 2020 experience, the production on that is just unbelievable. And I remember I tried, I was like doing my loop pedal thing at the time and trying to explore a little bit of R&B and stuff like that. And I went in and I tried to produce something inspired by Justin Timberlake and it was just it just sounded plastic and brittle and you know it lacked the the fullness of what those producers were able to do with some of his tracks. I don't know if you've ever listened to that album but it's it's pretty brilliant. I haven't listened to that album which is embarrassing. I I know that there's a there I remember there was at least one song I think from his prior album that I had that I was very into. Um, but I remember that coming out, and yeah. I remember, yeah, I remember it being different uh, in in the way that you're describing, like yeah. not just like another pop record. Um, yeah, it's very luscious. Um, like it starts out with this super luscious string section, and it's just like strings and and uh, an electric bass hitting these hitting these uh, notes, and it just immediately takes you into this whole other world 
and then he gets into the song and then it gets to the hook of the song and the hook just like blew my mind the way that they stacked all of the vocals and how smooth they all were but clear you know what i mean and like but kind of breathy and they were like they were transparent but also very present the way that they put all that shit together always blows my mind i can't i i'm not any good with like in the box production type of stuff you know yeah yeah the in the box stuff is is a, a different thing and yeah i mean the something that i always feel like is so amazing with the with you know what you're talking about like these like amazing pop producers who are able to like just fine tune things in these like incredibly beautiful ways so much of the beauty in that to me is is in like not even noticing it like for example like there are so many things where you know the first time i hear something a lot of the time i'm not aware of what i'm hearing and it's not obvious to me how much work went into it sometimes and yeah but like you can really really tell like you cumulatively it adds up so if you have like a producer here who takes that kind of care and that approach um the whole is so beautiful because of it uh which may not which may be less apparent uh with someone who's less aware of those details maybe mm-hmm. um or requires a different approach uh i think in some ways that's one of the reasons why i still gravitate towards samples I, this is changing but historically i've not been into software since at all they just don't sound they just sound too different. They don't sound like they're sound in the box. They, there's no, I'm not hearing. But you enough, use like, Omnisphere. Right? I do now. This is why I'm saying things change. Omnisphere oh, okay. is is damn good. Yeah. Um, and and it's also true that I'm just getting better at like mixing stuff like that. I just mm-hmm. never knew how to. As much as I love electronic music, I still like acoustic sounds. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to get that within the box stuff. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I will say, like throughout my short career as a as a film composer, some of the stuff, some of the samples that they have out there are unbelievable. But again, it's not in the box. It's that those are live samples. So like live string sections or live strings in general or live orchestras. Um, even what I use for drums with my electronic kit, it's BFD three, and it's like all live sampled drums. They spent you know, months in there with all these different drums and different miking setups and all this stuff. And then having a drummer come in and hit it with our different articulations and the way they're able to map all of that out so that when you sit down at your, you know, electronic drum kit and you play, it has probably as much of the subtlety uh, of playing an actual drum kit as you could possibly get, you know, electronically. And it's pretty yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. I used to be so, before I understood how much work went into making those, I would see those like sample packs and be like, why is it so expensive? Yeah. Now I understand. Um, Yeah. That stuff is wild and and they do such a good job. Yeah. You're right too, to point out how um, impressive the like mapping of it is and how they're able to like wild. Yeah. I I haven't even spent as much time with it as you have. I, I would like to, to check it out. My brother has one of those drum sets. But even even like um, even if you're just playing like programming on your keyboard, even just the like if you're hitting the snare drum 
a lower velocity is not just quieter. You know, they've mapped it so that the lower velocity actually is like a lower velocity drum hit. Yeah, there's like a, a difference sample. in the timbre. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. It's yeah, so cool. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah. My relationship with technology is kind of weird and wonky because on one hand, I think that those things are really amazing. Just the fact that we have uh, the ability to record in our homes, you know, like we talked about, or, you know, be able to download Logic or Ableton and have a studio for relatively cheap when way back in the day, you know, especially when we were recording on tape, you had to pay an arm and a leg to go in and record and you had all that, you know, you had that time crunch and all of that stuff. And then the fact that, you know, I built, I built a career as a film composer off of orchestra samples. You know, every film that I composed for, I used samples. I, I don't know how to play the cello. I can't play, you know, viola, <laughs> trumpets. And I, I'm not a brass section. I'm not a woodwind section. But being able to do that and, and compose an entire orchestral piece just sitting at your computer is really cool. Um, and so in that way, you know, I, I love technology and, and what it's done uh, for music and for artists and stuff like that. But do you feel like, you know, and, and this is sort of where you and I diverge, do you feel like there's a point where technology starts to diminish art? Well, it's an interesting question because to me, I think it does boil down to the individual and what they do with the tools. And it is true that technology does, you know, technology can encourage people to take what might seem like shortcuts. Let's, let me take that back. Technology can enable people to take a lot of shortcuts. Technology yeah. is, is taking shortcuts. Like when we build new tools or whatever, it's, you know, it's a means of like making something take less effort than it had before. Yeah. And so at some point, if there is no effort being exerted by the creator, then, you know, it's first of all, it ceases to be something that they're creating. Uh, but it also, I think, becomes more generic by default. And that's at every level, right? I mean, even if you think about um, like DAWs and, and digital recording, recording a song in a DAW uh, is a lot less than the amount of effort that goes into recording a song on tape, right? On yeah. a lot of different levels, without even getting into like quantizing and pitch correction and all of that stuff, even just the process of recording is streamlined and it's faster. It's a, it's a shortcut in, in some ways by the old standards. Mm -hmm. And then you have things like pitch correction, which is a shortcut. You know, you don't have to sit at the mic uh, for however long to get the line right, you can get it like close enough mm -hmm. and, um, and then kind of fix it. And that's the thing is it's such an interesting fine line in my mind because I have used pitch correction, but I've never used pitch correction as a crutch. Um, I've since like stopped using pitch correction and quantize and stuff and just do a bunch of takes and I, and I, kind of feel it out throughout and then I comp, but even comping is 
you know, cheating to some degree. Yeah, you're not you're not you're not actually with a razor blade like cutting the yeah. cape. <laughs> yeah. Or or not get just singing it properly all the way through. Right. You know? Yeah. And then you have the far end of the spectrum where you have somebody like T Pain who uses auto tune in an artistic way, and then that becomes something new, you know. Um but then you have all those all those people in the middle who like literally build careers on being singers, not being T-Pain in that they uh, are being shameless about the fact that they use auto-tune and making it part of their art, but they're kind of like selling people on the idea that they really sung or really sang that thing or that they're really singing. And then they go and they play live and they can't do what they did because it's not them that was doing it. Well, I mean, I think that the art suffers when people use it in not uh, creative ways. So like T-Pain's usage of it was a cre- is a c- very creative way. He's leaning into it. He's using it as, a, as an effect. And he did it like when no one else was doing it. And, yeah. you know, that's crazy. It's just like a really good idea. Um, yeah. You know, at a certain point, if you are a singer and you're using auto-tune as a way of hiding the imperfections in your voice, and then you're going out and performing live and it's noticeably worse, then you're doing the wrong thing. Like, <laughs> A, like, that person to me is more of a producer than a singer, mm-hmm. maybe. Or, uh, And when they have to perform on stage in front of people and they're not doing production, in a sense, anymore, then the, you know the uh the the edges show to put a light well and if they didn't produce the song are they a producer still so like or are they just a, a marketing face yeah i don't point? yeah i mean maybe so and and you know you could ask a question like is it you know maybe the producer's name should be the artist name instead of the singer mm-hmm. maybe the the singer is 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 a an instrument that the producer is using um, you know, and there are definitely people who I think pay closer attention to producers than they do to singers. You can imagine someone following a producer's work rather mm-hmm. than the singer. And, yeah. you know, they buy a Justin Bieber album or something because they know this person produced it. Right. Um, and yeah, you could, there's definitely a, an awkward like attribution error in that sort of, you could say, um, I don't know. I, I feel like it's very much just a different thing. And there will always be some people who like what the clean, polished production style sounds like. And so there's always going to be people to buy that, I think, or for now anyway, it's funny because I guess I don't, when I hear something that I like, I tend to just be really into it and I'm not, and I'm interested in who is involved with it. And if there, I don't know, I guess this is coming out poorly. I'm trying to think how to reword this. What was your, remind me of your question. <laughs> I don't, I don't remember at this yeah. point. <laughs> um, uh, well, no, like, like basically, you know, how do you feel about those types of applications? Because I feel like, I feel like that type of application of technology is becoming more and more ubiquitous with things like pop music. Yeah. Like we were talking about earlier, you know, in fact, I don't know. I'll probably, maybe I'll cut this out. Maybe I shouldn't say this. And I don't know if this is true or not, but 
I met someone who had produced one of mm-hmm. records who said that she doesn't sing her own shit. Oh, is that right? Interesting. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not. But as an example, you can imagine that there are definitely people like that who... Yeah. yeah well, and, and to, a, to a degree, you know, if you get a pop star, let's say, who can't really sing, and then you just melodyne the shit out of everything, that's not that person's voice anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's now a technology voice. And I mean, it's kind of neither here nor there because your opinion or my opinion is not going to change the fact that that exists and that's going to be what it is. But like, what's your, what's your feeling? Like when you hear stuff like that, that's just so obviously cooked up in a, you know, a think tank type of writing situation. And then, uh, obviously like just technologied the shit out of, to the point where you're being sold something that isn't real Mm -hmm. to a degree. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, all of the music that I, most of the music I listen to is not real in that sense. Like I would say that when I hear something, I either basically like it or I don't. And Mm -hmm. that's the first thing that I'm looking for, I think. And if I like it and it turns out that the vocalist, like, you know, didn't sing their own lyrics and they used all kinds of like pitch correction and stuff like that that changes my perspective about what it is, but it doesn't necessarily change whether or not I enjoy it. And if someone uses those techniques to make something that I ultimately enjoy, then like more power to them. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't know that I would call them a a, a vocalist necessarily. I mean, it depends on the, how far they're using the technology as a crutch in that way. Obviously it's a huge spectrum, but let's say that they use it. Let's say that they use an AI to, to, to to generate the vocals entirely like obviously they didn't put any real effort into that also if the thing that they produce is like good and it sounds cool then that's incredible to me like i want that like i want i'm I'm glad i'm glad you took it to the ai question because that that tends to be uh i think where the the magic happens between you and i so the ai subject you know you said you said if they're able to produce something, you know, awesome, then that's awesome. But did anybody produce it? And like, what what are the implications of that? That's you know, because in in my mind, all of these all of these things that have sort of stacked up over time as these crutches for um, for artists, but even more so, I think for. Uh, the music industry and commerce to turn shit out and make money off of it, you know, and risk less. Right. So like if you go and you sign an artist, you don't necessarily have to risk that that artist is going to sound like garbage in the studio because nobody has to worry about that. Mm -hmm. With the music industry now, you know, and with all of this AI stuff coming out now, what happens when, if and when they don't have to go even find an artist to make music? Yeah, I mean that's a different uh, that's a different discipline altogether. At that point, at that point, I think anyone could do that. It's not just the you know record labels or whatever. That method of 
producing music is a wholly, yeah, a different discipline outright. Sort of like that guy that was interning uh, last summer or whatever. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. And he showed off that thing that he had made where it was like, you know, make me a song in the uh, in the voice of Dua Lipa or, or in the style of Dua Lipa or whatever. And the thing just spit that shit out and it sounded like Dua Lipa and it was that kind of thing. Is that producing music? Like if you're just typing in, I want this, give me this. Is that producing music in your mind? Uh, I because would say- to me, that's a, that's a hard... That's a hard line for me. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call that person a producer. I'd call that person curious. Uh, yeah. Maybe having some kind of idea of something, but definitely not producing music. Well, so I would say that the 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 intern in question uh, is in that equation, sort of the producer. I think that w- mm-hmm. the effort that he put in to create something that could do that at all is that's something that uh, I would have to like study for years to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, I would say that the real credit goes to that individual and then also to Dua Lipa because it was trained on her delivery. So it's kind of like a joint thing in that way. It's almost like a, it is harder to pinpoint where to give credit, so to speak. Well, and you're sort of crossing streams there, right? Because it's like, is he a producer? Is he a music producer? No, he's a programmer, right? right? Like he, pro- he, didn't, he didn't produce any music. He made a program, he coded a program that then studied some music and was trained on that music. But he could have trained it on anything. He could have made a program that did, you know, just wrote short stories and trained it on, you know, Thoreau or whatever. But like, was he, did he produce any music in that equation? Or did he make something that produces music? Yeah, he made something that produces music. Yeah, maybe music producer isn't the right word. I will say, though, that like... It's kind of like the piano, like, well, so then this is kind of like a radical, maybe reimagining of what we describe as like mm, musical discipline or effort. But a part of me is astonished that like, like a record that has a piano recording on it or a composition that has a piano recording on it doesn't credit like the inventor of the piano. I don't even know if that (laughs) makes sense, like that there is one inventor of the piano, but you know, some individual or group of individuals over time put a lot of effort and energy into developing an instrument, a physical instrument that makes music in a very specific kind of way. Um, And that to me is like an act of, that's almost like an act of like composition to me in some ways, Mm -hmm. Um, almost like generative composition. Like you create this thing that makes music and then you put it out into the world and then see how people interact with it, what they do with it. And, you know, it's up to then the users of that instrument or device or bit of software or whatever to find creative ways to use it, to push it to its limits. You know, obviously, like, if you sit at the piano and you can press middle C over and over again and you're playing piano, 
Um, but what makes an amazing pianist is that they have learned to, as you well know, as an instrumentalist, like mm -hmm. they've, they've put in the years to, to, to make something, to develop a skill out of it. Um, and, and now this like incredible, you know, Glenn Gould, like is able to record these inc insane, you know, these piano pieces and, and you're just like, you're all, you're listening to him and you're like, what am I even hearing right now? And it's all enabled by this physical piece of hardware, which, you know, that person could have built a, a table or they could have built a, they could have written a book or they could have, or I guess book writing isn't a good example. I'm trying to think of something that you construct. Well, it's, it's engineering, right? Yeah. 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 So, which is the same as, um, the, the fellow that was interning, um, the other yeah. summer, he's an engineer, exactly. he engineered yeah. something, but like, you know, the, uh, the person who invented the spoon, um, you know, probably wouldn't be credited on an album who, uh, where the, of a spoon, like a spoon player album, people do amazing things with spoons musically, right? I'm sure. Yeah. But that person didn't, didn't create the spoon intentionally for that, um, that's sort of a, that that was a random thought that had nothing to do with what we were talking about. Um, yeah, I don't know. For, for me, when it comes to AI and those kinds of things and, and it, it starts to confuse it and it's it's probably me in, you know, having spent so much time developing one skill or another when it comes to music, you know, the thing the thing that I value and I know we've talked about this before the thing that I value is spending the time to develop a skill. And it doesn't mean that you have to um, be amazing at it. You don't have to be an amazing pianist who can, you know, play Chopin or whatever. Just playing the piano, just taking the time, you're sitting down and, and playing, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Like, that's developing a skill. And there's a lot that you learn from that that's applicable to life. Right. So like perseverance, the ability to internalize failure as not only a means for, but, a, but the necessary building blocks for success. And then if we remove that risk of failure altogether, what are we actually taking away from people? Like what opportunities are we taking away from people? And I know we've had these conversations before because there were certain products sometimes that I always felt, um, you know, were kind of doing that. They were taking away a person's opportunity to actually learn how to learn, you know, mm -hmm. and, and sort of commodifying the experience of music, which is already something that's slowly being more and more commodified over time. Yeah. I mean, I think that you're, you're right in the sense that like, a discipline is getting lost. Like, let's just say uh, musicianship. Um, you know, no one has to learn how to play an instrument to make music now. You, mm -hmm. No one has to put in that those hours and those dis that, 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 that discipline over years to make a record. They do still have to exert discipline, though. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, an effort. And I think you have that to you have to learn how to write songs in order to write songs, even if you do it in the box. You mm -hmm. still have to spend time learning, you know, and going through the process of learning how to write 
music that's cohesive and that you know is uh, expressive of something. So I I agree with that completely. Yeah, and I mean but, I think that the the intern in, in particular too, like for example, like you know, many years to like to do that is maybe mm-hmm. a question we might have not come from different angles on it. Like, is he a, mu- a musician in a sense or not? He's a debate. fantastic, he's a fantastic software engineer. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. a, that's an amazing thing to do. That's, uh, it was impressive. It also scared the shit out of me because, it- yeah, because, you know, again, I'm, I, when I think about my son and the things that I would want to teach him, it would all, it would be all of the things that it takes to learn perseverance or, or how to everything that I talked about and you know, whether he was making beats on an MPC or, you know, actually playing like an acoustic, a more acoustic instrument or whatever, you know, learning to be expressive with something is really cool. And technology can be a means for that. And you, you are a prime example of that. Your music is all technological, but it's all extremely expressive and and creative and brilliant and really fun to listen to. But when you can just type something in and get it, does that become does that do to music what Tinder does to dating, essentially? Like, does it make it a full-blown commodity where it's like, I can have whatever I want whenever I want, and I don't ever have to learn anything about it? Right. It does, in a sense. Um, but I still think that because the technology exists and because it makes so many things easier, that then our standards as listeners and creators rise accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, like the effort that someone has saved by not having to learn an instrument or learn how to write songs even, um, you know, that, that individual then has a choice to make. Are they going to take that extra effort that they didn't have to spend uh, and just not, and just kind of have that? Or are they going to reallocate that effort into a different part of the creative process? Like maybe they learn, (laughs) You know, they get better at arrangement or something like that, or they. Uh, but they, if but if someone's typing in, but on, on the sp- topic of AI specifically and AI generated music, mm-hmm. what is what else is there for them to reallocate their energy towards? If they're typing something in and it's spitting out a complete song, and they're like, "Cool, a song," then what else do they reallocate their energy towards? Marketing. Yeah, I mean, I would say that at the point where the technology gets good enough for that to be possible, mm-hmm. that it's going to be a short time before people are pushing that in some way that I don't even know if I can imagine right now that results in a form of music that we can't even, like, imagine. Like, mm-hmm. you can, it, it, it could lead to a place where, like, the music of 2023 sounds quaint. And yeah, it's like it's depth and complexity or something it's like, like that. Write me a write me a Nirvana song with Chris Cornell on bass and uh, Lady Gaga playing the triangle, and make sure to include some Indian drums in there as well, and make it a waltz. Right. Yeah. 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 But the thing is, it's like once everyone starts doing that, 
the novelty and like amazement of that it will just fade away and mm-hmm. it won't be enough to do that anymore there people are going to have to find new ways to push it creatively to exert you know, humans are just like curious is a curious species like we're not going to i don't think that we're going to just like stop trying new things and trying to challenge ourselves i think it's i mean some people do i guess but i think it's we're wired to want to try and explore new things and so i don't think that creatives are going to be super complacent for very long because you're right. Like there is nothing really creative about typing in a prompt. I mean, you can come up with a creative prompt, but like that's the extent of the creativity. And so well, I don't, I don't creative- even know if it'll be creatives that'll be interested in it. Right. Or as interested in it as much as record labels and people that can make money off of it, you know, relatively easily because they're the ones who churn out all of the hits anyway. Um, it's like self-driving cars, which I know you love. But let's let's take a let's take a break because I kind of am about to pee my pants. I have to pee too. So. Okay, cool. Yeah. Bladder, bladder empty. Bladder empty. Yeah, I don't. I I don't feel like it's necessarily going to be the people that make music that are going to be like the main um, users of something like that. Yeah. There'll be the people like you said that, that maybe want to figure out how to push it, but that'll probably be a pretty small group of people. I think that the people who are going to be the main users of something like that are going to be the people who sell music and the people who buy music. Right? Like if I can get, a Dua Lipa song without having to pay for it, why would I do that? And if I can, you know, make a Dua Lipa song without having to pay Dua Lipa, why would I pay her to come do it if I can just get her? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting point. I mean, there's a, a wider conversation I, I think we could have about, like, copyright law and like what oh, yeah absolutely what what goes forward now i mean I, I would argue that like i mean it's clear now that that, that modern copyright law is not going to work in the same way that it has always worked no um i i don't know what the answer to that is however i do intuitively feel that uh Music would be better without copyright laws. <laughs> As someone who samples all the time, I think that 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 uh, copyright law is kind of stifling music in some ways. And I think that these new technologies that are emerging is going to demand that creators kind of become comfortable with the idea of something that they put out there maybe not being theirs anymore. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think to a degree, when, when you make something and you put it out there, it's not yours anymore uh, in the, already. Like, it's other people are going to interpret it. Other people are going to, you know, find their own meaning in it. So in that way, it's not your expression anymore. But without copyright law, how do artists get paid? Yeah, this is a, this is a very like I think I, I have a fairly like radical view of this. I, I don't know that it is. I don't know if I, I like the system in which people make art for money. Um, well, I think that there's a there's a difference between making art for money and uh, making money for art. 
Right. And do, so are you saying that you don't like you don't like it when somebody makes art for money? I think I can I can mm-hmm. probably agree with that statement, but if you're saying that you don't think that artists should get paid for their art, that I don't know if I would necessarily agree with that because I, if we we already live in a country that greatly greatly devalues art and and creativity in general and we live in a country in a, in a world where money you know happens to be the sort of end all be all for declaring whether or not something has value right i don't like that i wish we all lived in a in a world where there was no money to some degree and like and everybody just did things because they loved doing them. Nobody had to work shit jobs that they didn't want to work to be able to pay for, you know, their fish fillet from McDonald's or whatever. But like we do live in that world and money is something that you need to survive. And if artists did not make money or didn't have an, weren't able to make money for it, I feel like that would devalue art in general. Maybe I, so one thing, yeah, I totally hear what you mean. And it probably would in a sense devalue things. I mean, you can see that in the availability of music now with streaming services, like Mm -hmm. the, in the past, like you buy a CD and like you only had money to buy the one CD. So you listen to it again and again and And again. And you cherished it and you like read the booklet and, and it was, it was something that was very special to you. And it was a, it was something that you felt like you had a connection with that artist in some mm-hmm. way, shape or form. Yeah. And yeah. you know, yeah. So now when everyone has available access to whatever they want all the time, effectively for free, lo and behold, we like, you know, our attention spans just jump around all the time. We listen to songs, we listen to artists, and then we quickly move on to the next thing. Some of the stuff that I'm, I, that I'm, I'm thinking of here is, is especially with the copyright stuff. Like I'm very like, taken by the model of like meme culture in many ways where i don't know just imagine any classic meme like the the dog with the cough of coffee that says this is fine in the house burning i don't know if anyone knows where that originally came from Mm -hmm. and there are variations of that that float around that are just constantly like you know spider versing off into different variations of themselves it's like this whole thing that people are like participating in and don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say this is like high art or anything like that, but it is a a form of creative expression that people take this thing and then they reinterpret it. And no one's really thinking about who was the first person to, to do that. And I think that because no one really knows and no one really cares necessarily that like there's a beauty in people being able to express. So like, wildly in that way it becomes almost like a communal art form in that way it's like a everyone's participating into the sphere of what this thing can be and uh, i i wonder sometimes especially when i you know back to the ai thing like there was some like kid on tiktok or something who made a you know a brand new song out of like a, a collaboration between the weekend and drake and mm-hmm. like you know, yeah. neither of them participated in that. And, um, you know, I think that that's kind of cool. I, I think that that's pretty sick. And, you know, he probably didn't make any money off of that because it's illegal. Um, but I like that 
people are doing that. I, it's kind of interesting, and I think that that's well. Is fun it fun and cool? Is it illegal though? Like, would, does copyright law cover that kind of thing? If it's AI generated, you know what I mean, and it's not using pre-existing material uh, from The Weeknd or from Drake. You know, is there a copyright infringement there? Well, the, like, the labels did have it taken down. Yeah, I, oh, I think okay. that there was something about the uh, using their likeness. I assume I'm not totally yeah. sure, but yeah. it did get taken down. And I mean, there, there's something really cool and and kind of punk rock about it, but I also see, you know, from the perspective of Drake and The Weeknd, who have spent a considerable amount of time building their likenesses and their their you know, uh, careers and those kinds of things. And then for someone to come along and be like, all right, I'm going to make a song using you and your voice and mm -hmm. your style and your thing. And you, I'm going to, I'm going to use you, but without using you, uh, that seems kind of f fucked up to me in a way. It's cool. It's cool that, that the technology exists to do that. But, you know, at the same time, like, a, I would consider that to be an infringement upon me as a person. Um, and B, who, like, does the world really need more Weekend and Drake? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's another it, conversation, too. Like, it, it's, uh, yeah, I take your point there. If somebody started putting music out as me, right? Not that anybody would, because uh, I'm not the Weekend or Drake. But if somebody started putting music out as me, using AI that was trained on my voice, on my writing style, and on all of that stuff, it, to, in my mind, that's sort of like, that's identity theft. Mm -hmm. You know, I've spent my whole life developing my voice as an artist. And then someone just comes and fucking types that shit in and they're like, okay, here you go. And right. It's like, you know, you might as well take my social security number and my credit cards and fucking go rent an apartment. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. there's, that to me is, that's, I think, I think that's part of what feels weird about it as an artist. It's like, it's sort of like identity theft in a way. It probably, yeah. it, it would feel that way if that ever happened to me, which it never would. It's super cool that we can, mm -hmm. but, but does that mean we should? Yeah, so the, that's the Jurassic Park conundrum. Yeah. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, for me, I think combined with the fact that I don't, you know, like we said earlier, like, this shit isn't slowing down. <laughs> it's weird. It's weird to think about. Um, I can imagine a world in which people get used to it, frankly. Like, I know how shitty that sounds, and I don't want that to be... I do think that, you know there are ways of doing this that are more or less tasteful than others, as in, in good taste, like just being respectful to one human and another. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, we already kind of live in that world pre AI, just with the internet, the fact that someone can take a photograph of one person and uh, Photoshop them doing something that they didn't do. Right. Um, you know, frankly, I don't know how interesting that kind of content would be if everyone was doing that. I don't. And to that point, I don't know how interesting it's going to be if someone just like 
keeps making a bunch of weekend songs or something right. like that. They're always going to range in quality too. And, and I, well, it, there's you know, an, in, you know, I mean, I know you use chat GPT. I used it one time just out of, out of curiosity. Cause you were telling me all about it. And I, I, uh, I wanted to see what it would do if I asked it to write me a YouTube script about what makes Radiohead so great. And what it's, what it spit out was like the most generic, you know, like just copy from Wikipedia bullshit. Mm -hmm. And I think that I do think that no matter how good technology gets, there's a, there's a human element to things like art and to music um, that you just can't replace. Right. Even now with the technology, with recording technology being as good as it is, if a song is entirely quantized, it has a completely different and sort of more fabricated feel than John Bonham playing, uh, you know, when the levee breaks. He is, he he varies in time as he's playing it, so he'll speed up a little bit, he'll slow down a little bit. He's not playing it perfectly, right? And there's something to that that makes music feel more uh, immersive and relatable to people. I think that that people will always crave that to some degree. I also yeah. think that there's a place for perfectly quantized and perfectly pitched music. Um, and I like that stuff too. Again, Radiohead is a is a great example of a use uses of technology and electronic sounds and and things like that um, in a way that's really beautiful and poignant. Um, if we end up in a world where, uh, you know, AI is making most of the music that you hear on the radio, and that, you know, the corporations that push music out there are not paying artists and they're just using AI to generate that music. It's quite possible that we would see a subculture come out of that sort of in protest to it or mm -hmm. in opposition to it. That would be the inverse of it. Like you know? traditionalist like, kind of like, like back yeah. to the, yeah, like the, the human, purely human created music in a sense, yeah. or more human created, like AI free. Music. Yeah. Even just looking at it through history, like the response to hair metal, this hyper commercial thing mm -hmm. in the 80s yeah. was grunge, right? Yeah. On the other hand, I also worry because I look around now too and I see the way that technology has ingrained itself in every single piece of our lives and how it's conditioned us to, to desire instant gratification in every aspect of our lives. I wonder if because we're already conditioned to sort of commercially consume things in general, if that would affect the response to something that was hyper-commercialized like AI-generated music. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be like pop versions of things that people will gravitate to and that will make money. I keep coming back to the and and stop me if this is not even what you're referring to or what you're asking, but like I keep coming back to just like the fact that there are, are always going to be creative people who are pushing the, those boundaries. And and I don't and I do mean like not just the people who are making it just to make money, you know, trying to make a quick buck or something. I, I do mean like I like I know that I would not feel comfortable 
getting paid to make music. Now, I'm sure if mm. someone said like, we're going to pay you now, like do whatever you want to do. Like, I'm sure I would take them up on it. <laughs> but like, you know, I don't, I don't seek that. Um, and I, I very consciously separated my money making ventures from my music making explorations because I, I feel like I'm able to create more freely when I'm not having to think about that side of it. And that includes things like, you know, like I posted something on Instagram the other day that like, that just blatantly sampled like uh, the John Williams score from Indiana Jones. And it's, you know, there's no question that I'm not allowed to do that. There's also no question that I didn't make that part of it. Um, yeah. But I think that if I was in a position where I was making a living off of music, I wouldn't do things like that. And it's doing, it's the, having the freedom to do something like that, that makes the act of making music fun for me. It makes it exploratory. It makes it like, you know, it makes it so joyful for me. Um, and I like the idea of more people making music purely for, for joy, for, for curiosity and joy. Um, I can agree with that. I mean, during the time that I was professionally making music and making money for making music, it actually like complicated my relationship with music quite a bit to introduce money into the equation. Suddenly this thing that I was doing for the pure fun of it had this sort of monetary expectation um, or this monetary value attached to it. And along with that came expectations. And uh, it's part of the reason why I stopped sort of pursuing like a career in music. And the place where I've come to now is that like, like I make music for music's sake. I'm not trying to have a career doing it, you know, uh, or anything like that. I just want to, be creative for being creative. I'm I'm with you that I I would encourage more people to play music just for the love of it. At the same time, taking monetary value away from art, I worry about what effect that would have on art publicly. Sort of like we, what we were talking about with streaming services versus buying CDs, or like I don't know. That's a tough one. I've never really thought about it that way. You could argue that people respond to incentives and money is a, a fucking powerful incentive. And mm -hmm. you know, some people will be inclined to, to pursue something because of the, of the reward um, or because of, because of the money. And, 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 you know, if consumers had say an appetite for like extreme, like weirdness or something like that, and were willing to pay for it, then people would start making a lot weirder music. Yeah. Um, it just happens not to be that, that way. There's something that does break my heart when I think about the idea of the idea of a career in music going away. That does seem sad to me, but I don't know that it's just a loss. Like, I feel like it is, it begets a new approach to creativity that allows for more, freedom and joy. And, and frankly, like you, you, you still make music and, mm -hmm. and that is a testament to your interest and your passion and your excitement about it. And it's, 
people like you, I think, who are going to be making the most interesting music in the years to come. Like, I think that that's where the best music is, is maybe going to be seeded from. Uh, yeah. Is, I, I, yeah, I, I guess that's I, yeah. I mean, I, I would argue that some of the best, most meaningful music in the world was made by people who weren't making it for money. Exactly, yeah. I mean, we've But they did make money. <laughs> some of them. Yeah, yeah. But, you know. But you make, I mean, like, we're, we all have, like, marketable skills. Like, it's, mm -hmm. you can make money in other ways, I, I think. Yeah. And, you know, it's like people, like humans, prehistoric humans were making music. Uh, recognition seems confusing almost. Like, you mm -hmm. mean, like, I'm just like, I'm just whistling right now. Or I'm just like, I found this, like, you know, I made this bone flute and I'm just like fucking around with it. Like, I could like get resources by doing this. Like, right. I, I like that attitude of music making better. I think. Well, it was, it was a part of the communal thing, but also taking into account that in that time, you know, we lived in a more communal world, mm -hmm. right? Where the value of having people playing music was just in the having of them playing music. I think for me, the, the, the monetization of money or the monetization of money, the monetization of music and creativity is maybe even less about like the artist's ability to, to make money or to make a living as much as it's about the public valuing art in general. And a lot of people will only value things, I guess, if they have to pay for them. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I might just be talking out of my ass right now. No, no, no. I think that that's a really good point. I think that because sometimes the, I wonder if money makes that worse, I guess. Yeah. Because, I mean, you could say that, like, because a certain type of music makes a certain kind of money that then people, like we were talking about earlier, then, like, once people figure nail that science down, then they're just going to do that shit again and again and again and again. Well, I think that's a good place to uh, to call it. Is there anything that you're working on or releasing or anything like that? Do you still go by Soros? I do, yeah. I don't know if that, uh, I sometimes think like, maybe I should change that name or it's like from a, you know, there's something like corny about it. I just grew up liking dinosaurs or whatever. I just but, think it's so but, dope. Like, well, that, maybe I'll keep it. The, yeah, I mean, there's there's something. What I do like is the idea of of like, I do love like when an artist has a moniker or something and it's like an identity and then they preserve that identity like for their whole life or something. And it's, I love seeing like a progression over time. And there's something about a moniker that can really, I don't know, give, yeah. can simplify that in a way. So for that reason, I, I'm, I'm tempted to, to stick with it. Even though I, I think you should. Ever, well, what about you? What are you working on? Uh, I'm just, uh, just YouTube videos, man. <laughs> just yeah. making YouTube videos and trying to find a job. You know? Hell yeah. You're, you're um, making your own job. Where can people listen to Soros? Yeah, there's SoundCloud where if I don't post that often, but I've been trying to post more often. So newer stuff is there. And then there's a band camp, but I, the stuff on there is like from 2015, I think. So right. it's a bit older. I really appreciate you coming on here and chatting with me. I, I, again, like I seem not to ever get bored of this conversation. <laughs> Same. <laughs> weird yeah <laughs> it's fascinating yeah same cool man well thanks really? for being here i, yeah, I really appreciate me. it
Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that chat. Honestly, it seemed like we got kind of cut off a little short, so it's entirely likely that Jeremy will be back on the podcast sometime soon. If you want to check out Jeremy's music, you can find a link to his SoundCloud in the show notes. I promise you won't be disappointed. And if you're more of a visual person and for some reason want to see what we look like, this and all of the chats to come have a video version available on my Patreon, which you can check out in the show notes. So until next time, I'm Chris Hazel, and this is the art of sucking at music. See you later. <laughs>